Good morning. Welcome to St. Paul's Online. I'm really glad you joined us. With each new reminder of the horrors of residential schools here in Canada, with graves of children uh, found at schools that Anglicans ran, simply a matter of time, it gets harder and harder to publicly tell anyone that you are a Christian or even be intrigued uh, by the claims that Jesus made. You know, might they actually be true? Might they impact my life for the better? It's a tough sell these days. And our summer series looking at the parables of Jesus, punchy stories that Jesus told to convey a truth is not making it any easier because this is week three of tough stories. Now, no rainbows and lollipops either this week. No, we've got weeds and reapers and furnaces of fire and weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a story about judgment, which instinctively makes us recoil. Now, even though our culture is actually in an interesting moment in time right now, we've got cancel culture on the rise, and we love to point fingers and claim the moral high ground on social media. We just don't want the fingers pointed uh, back at us. But hang in there with me, because I believe that a careful reading of this parable, uh, despite our emotional, our initial emotional reaction against judgment, I think there's some good news that you need to hear. Two things. One, the weeds in our life and in the life of the church, they can strengthen and grow us. And two, knowing that God is a judge gives us tangible hope for the future. Weeds can strengthen us and God being a judge can bring us hope. As I mentioned last week, uh, tough to swallow uh, passages in the Bible, they play an important part in an intellectually uh, robust and transparently authentic Christian faith. And when we come to passages like ours, we're tempted to become like the second century teacher Marcion. And Marcion had like a mental pair of scissors, and he just liked to slice out of the Bible all those parts that offended him uh, for one reason or the other. And to some degree, all of us are modern day Marcionites. But this is actually really short-sighted, and it's actually quite intellectually narrow. Terrifying or annoying passages, and we have one this morning, are important because they expose how really powerless in life I actually am. And they reveal a sovereign God who's radically different from me, whose decisions I cannot completely predict and whose actions I cannot seem to control. So let's begin. The parable has two versions. Uh, the first version you find in verses 24 to 30, which Jesus told to the waiting crowds. It's fairly straightforward. A sower sows some good seed, but an enemy comes along and sows weeds in the field while everyone's asleep. Uh, some helpful servants offer to do a little weeding in the field, and the sower surprisingly replies, verse 29, no. For in gathering in the weeds, you would uproot the wheat along with them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, collect the weeds first, bind them into bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. This is the version of the parable that Jesus told to the crowds. 
And then Jesus gives an annotated version to the disciples discreetly inside his house. This is a, a deeper, more intense teaching for those who were closest to him. He, Jesus, is the sower. The field represents the world. The weeds, well, they belong to the evil one, who is that personal force of evil as ancient as Eden, the Christians believe is actively engaged in destroying all the good things that God has for the world. And the wheat are those people who belong to the kingdom of God. And by using, you know, traditional and dramatic Aramaic hyperbole, a furnace of fire and weeping and gnashing of teeth, Jesus bluntly holds out a time, a final judgment for all of humanity, making it clear that we have no right to do any weeding. Judgment is left to God and God alone. Where's that good news? Well, to start with, the weeds in our life and our church are a reality that can strengthen and mature us. Historians tell us that these weeds were most likely a local Middle Eastern variety known as darnel, which look very much like wheat uh, when they're sprouting. And in fact, it's impossible to distinguish the two uh, when they're first growing. But by time the, uh, the plant bears grain, you can easily tell one from the other. But the problem is by then their roots have become intertwined and you can't pull out the weeds without uprooting the wheat at the same time. So if you were to take a, a 24 hour look uh, up close and personal at my life, uh, you would see that there are both good and worthless seeds sown within me. Uh, the good seed by God and the worthless seed sown by the evil one. And here is that, you know, just brutal realism of Jesus. There are actions and attitudes sown deep within us, a, a sinful reality to our nature that is not going away. And it's that same brutal realism that leads Anglicans to have confession every single Sunday in our services. No heads in the sand here. Sin's a problem, both in our daily lives and it has eternal consequences if it's not confronted. Yet what's so intriguing about a careful reading of this parable is that Jesus tells us that at least some of the seeds within us will, maybe should, remain where they are until the harvest time uh, of my physical death. The week in, week out confession of the weeds in our life that honest and authentic acknowledgement, it can give us a deep and abiding humility in life, which is incredibly appealing. It's that honest humility about ourselves that leads us to sacrifice for the sake of others. They need our help just as much as I do. And it leads us also not to judge other people, mindful of our own great failings. It's honest humility in the face of weeds which reminds us of our deep dependence on God, our need for rescuing, and it can save us from, you know, poisonous arrogance. And the reality of weeds in my life, of my mixed spiritual biodiversity, weeds that will exist until the great reaping of my physical death, it's what makes God's abiding love for me all the more impactful and real. 
Imagine how stressful it would be if I thought that God's love for me depended on my life being a pure field of, of golden wheat. And the other bit of personal good news here is that at the end of time, all our weeds, they're all going to be uprooted. We can thank God for that time when everything will be sorted out and God's cleansing, purifying, liberating love burns up everything in my life, everything in the world that is less than love. So weeds in my life, a bit of good news. But how can that same brutal realism be about the church? How could that be good news? Well, the obvious answer is that uh, every church, every community of people learning how to follow Jesus is made up of people like, you know, you and me. And the church is just groups of sinful people. The, the flaws, the weeds, they're magnified because we're all in one place, which I realize is not a great marketing strategy for the church, mind you. But on that level, the church is just like any other institution, your university, your union, city council, Trudeau's cabinet, uh, your hockey team, your grandmother's bridge circle. But look where Jesus's brutal realism goes, because there is hope to be found for people learning how to follow Jesus. Weeding will take place, but it is not for us to do that in this life. Only God is to judge. In a baseball game, the pitcher, catcher, uh, batter, and coach, they can argue all they want, uh, but the home plate umpire makes the final calls and the final decisions. No matter how much the players might froth at the mouth, it's the umpire who makes the call. Those are the rules of the game. The weeds are here to stay, and God will be the judge. There's a story in the Islamic Sufi tradition about a character named Nasruddin. Nasruddin decides to start a flower garden. He prepares the soil carefully and plants the seeds. But when his flowers come up, they're overrun by dandelions. After trying every method he can think of to eliminate the weeds, he finally walks to the capital to talk to the royal gardener. The wise gardener suggests a number of remedies to eradicate the dandelions, but Nasruddin has tried them all already. They sit in silence for a moment with the sun beating down, pondering the dandelions. Until at last, the royal gardener stretches, stands up, looks at Nasruddin and says, well, I suggest you learn to love them then. If you choose to be part of a Christian community, you will definitely be spending time with people that you probably wouldn't spend time with anywhere else. An incredible spiritual biodiversity of people, many of whom who will rub you the wrong way and who you will disagree with. And you will be associated with an organization that has not only acted with compassion and self-sacrifice for centuries, founding hospitals and schools around the world, providing spiritual fuel to suffragettes, those who sought to desegregate segregate the United States and others to defeat Nazism, but also an institution that persecuted Galileo, built residential schools, and tells abused women to stay with their husbands. You see, church is not a social club for necessarily like-minded people or those who have it all together. Church is a hospital for sick people. 
people who know they need to learn how to love, learn how to forgive, learn how to put other people's needs before themselves. And how on earth are we going to learn that if church is simply a basket of full gleaming golden wheat waving in the summer sun? Well, I suggest you learn to love them. You see, the weeds in the good soil of our lives and of our churches can have a divine purpose of not making us happy. Many of those weeds are awful, but they can be used by God to shape us to be holy. Holiness is where we draw nearer and nearer to the beauty, the the goodness, the compassion, the righteousness, the justice of that carpenter from Nazareth. And as we draw nearer and nearer to that, we yearn for that holiness more and more in our own lives and in the church. Ironically, it's the weeds that drive us towards action in pursuit of holiness, if not happiness. From the Book of Common Prayer. Gracious Father, we pray for thy holy church. Fill it with truth, in all truth with all peace. Where it is corrupt, purify it. Where it is an error, direct it. Where in anything it is amiss, reform it. That's a prayer. It's a prayer for the church. But it's also a prayer for me and for you. So weeds can strengthen our spiritual growth, both personally and for the church as an institution, but how does God being a judge actually bring us hope? Now, because Jesus uses fairly conventional Aramaic hyperbole, as I said, a fiery furnace, weeping and gnashing of teeth, we could be forgiven for thinking that the idea of an eternal judgment is not to be taken literally, right? Any more than we take literally the idea of pearly gates or the streets of heaven being paved with gold. It makes it sound like some Trump hotel. But think on this. I have not yet met anyone who wants God to be the kind of God who says, you know what? Child pornography, rape, corporate fraud, like they don't really bother me. Residential schools, you know, most people back then had, had you know, good intentions. Uh, it's in the past. Let's move on. No. No, we would reject a God like that. We want God to be a God who judges because there cannot be a loving God without the same God being a judge. Any loving person is filled with righteous judgment. The American writer Becky Pippert says it this way. Think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's judgment is not a cranky explosion, but God's settled opposition to the cancer of sin, which is eating out the insides of the human race God loves with God's whole being. God is not indifferent towards sin and suffering and has a plan to deal with it. We can be grateful for a God who was willing to go to hell and back for us, who loves us so much that God took the pain and consequences of our consistently broken choices on God's shoulders so that we would not have to bear them. 
We can give thanks for a God whose plan it is to work through the daily lives of deeply flawed people like me and like you to bring the world back to beauty and truth, to wonder, to call us to truth and reconciliation. We can give thanks for a God who's actually involved in our suffering, who knows suffering personally, and is bringing the world to a perfect conclusion where at the great reaping of death, every tear will be wiped away, every wound bound up in the loving arms of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our parable from Jesus today, it is about judgment. It's a dose of brutal realism. Realism that can lead us to holy action and can fuel hope. Let me end by praying for me, praying for you, so that we can all join in that. Gracious Father, we pray for ourselves. Fill us with truth, in all truth with all peace. Where we are corrupt, purify us. Where we are in error, direct us. Where in anything we are amiss, reform us. All for the sake of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.